Red Salute. Welcome to the Manifesting Podcast. If you want to support this project, which allows me more time to produce and release content, you can do so on my website, manifestingpodcast.com. There's a link to my Patreon, as well as a donation button that allows you to just donate through the site itself. You can also do so on my anchor.fm page. Just search for Manifesting Podcast. Thanks so much for helping me keep revolutionary media alive. Question 6. What challenges and difficulties did China face during socialist construction? In Chinese Revolution and the Chinese Communist Party, Mao analyzed China's society as semi-colonial and semi-feudal. Mao led China to win the Socialist Revolution and to develop socialism, despite the fact that China's capitalist development was still in its very early stage. Developing socialism in a country where its productive forces were minimally developed presented some serious challenges and difficulties. Even with these serious challenges, China made spectacular achievements during the socialist construction. In hindsight, we have a better understanding of the challenges China faced and the kinds of problems they created during socialist development. An analysis of these challenges can not only help other semi-colonial and semi-feudal countries in their pursuit of socialist development, it can also help explain at least partially why, after a few short decades, China's successful socialist development that benefited hundreds of millions of people was aborted in 1978. Of course, there were those who betrayed the socialist cause, and in China, those traitors have since been clearly identified. But simply calling them traitors does not help us understand the underlying causes for their betrayal. Unlike religion, socialism does not depend on faith or saintly behavior. Marxists must investigate the concrete situation and come up with an analysis based on the objective and subjective factors in China at that time. As noted earlier, Karl Marx believed that the proletariat in advanced capitalist countries were likely the first ones to make socialist revolution and develop socialism. His reasoning was that, when capitalism reaches its mature stage, the contradictions between the private ownership of the means of production and social production deepens. This contradiction prevents productive forces from further development unless there is a change in the relations of production, a revolution that appropriates the private ownership of the means of production. In the mature stage of capitalism, where production is already operating at a very large scale, the transfer of ownership from private to public, although it would require tremendous political, economic, and social struggles, could proceed without too many complications, because both industrial and agricultural production would already be operating at the same scale. After the revolution, the ownership of large industrial complexes and large-scale farms could be transferred to the state, changing private ownership to public. However, in a country like China in 1949, and in other semi-colonial and semi-feudal countries, there were only some small-scale industrial enterprises in cities and small-scale peasant family farming in the countryside. Therefore, it wasn't possible to transfer the means of production from private ownership to one single public ownership. Instead, the state took over the means of production of industrial enterprises and in agriculture, 
the three-tier communes collectively own the means of production in agriculture. During the entire period of socialist development in China, state ownership and collective ownership coexisted. Mao foresaw the potential problems created from the two types of ownership and often expressed concern. After the transfer of ownership of means of production to one single public ownership in countries where capitalism had reached the advanced stage of development, there would be continued struggle to make the socialist economy run smoothly in the economic base. Also, probably more importantly, there would be ongoing struggle to continuously meet challenges in the superstructure, political, ideological, and cultural, with the goal to eventually bring commodity production to an end. During this time of transition, the volume and the scope of commodity production would be gradually reduced to an insignificant level and eventually fade away. As commodity production fades away, the law of value, equal value exchange, would cease to dominate people's consciousness. Then we will have reached socialism, the early stage of communism. However, in socialist China, when the two types of ownership coexisted, the exchange between the state sector and the collective sector and within the collective sector increased. Most of these exchanges were commodity exchanges, although they were strictly regulated. Therefore, when productive forces developed under the two types of ownership, commodity production, instead of decreasing in volume and scope, increased in both. It is reasonable to assume that when commodity production increased in both volume and scope, the law of value continued to play a role and was likely to play an increasingly important role. In China's case, even though regulation helped prevent the law of value from expanding without bounds, neither commodity production nor the law of value could be regulated out of existence. These were the capitalist elements at work in China's growing socialist economy. Not only must we recognize them, but we also must thoroughly reckon with them in order to understand the challenges they pose to China's socialist development. Below is an attempt to analyze the challenges posed by the low level of development of productive forces during socialist construction. The coexistence of two types of ownership of the means of production. As described earlier, under collective ownership, China's agriculture made tremendous progress in building agricultural infrastructure, modernizing and increasing production, and brought tremendous improvements to people's lives. These achievements were made possible by the hard work of the peasants and the economic relationship that the collective sector had with the state sector. As explained above, the means of production and agriculture were collectively owned by the communes, which had three tiers of ownership, the commune, the brigade, and the team. The team was the basic accounting unit. At this basic accounting level, peasant households put their resources, land, farm tools, and labor, together and distributed the team's output according to the labor contributed by team members. The production team was in fact a rather small unit of around 20 peasant households, but it was difficult to enlarge the basic accounting unit to the brigade level, which would expand the number of households to several times of the size of the team. The reason for the difficulty was that enlarging the size of the basic accounting unit to the brigade level by combining resources of several teams 
would even out the income of all the teams. Such consolidation would have disadvantaged the higher income teams by pulling their income down to the average. This does not mean it would be impossible to enlarge the basic accounting unit, only that it would require time. When the brigade owned more and more large agricultural machinery and equipment, such as tractors, combines, threshers, and planters, and made them available for all teams to use, then the differences among the teams became relatively small, and every team benefited, although maybe not equally. The same is true for consolidating several brigades into a commune as the basic accounting unit. During socialism, many communes, especially the rich ones, were able to use their accumulation funds to build large-scale irrigation projects, including electric pumping stations, to purchase large agricultural instruments and to build factories. These kinds of development paved the way to enlarge the basic accounting unit to the commune level. By 1978, however, when Deng carried out the capitalist reform, very few communes had been able to grow the basic accounting unit to the brigade level. We know how capitalism polarizes society, while socialism does the opposite. However, in the concrete case of China, when there were two types of ownership, the equalizing impact was limited. The reason is that while state ownership enabled different parts of China to develop more evenly, collective ownership was able to equalize development within units, such as the teams, but it could not help equalize income among collectives, brigades, and communes. It was even less possible across different regions. As explained earlier, under state ownership, more advanced industrial enterprises helped set up and develop other new industrial enterprises by aiding them with machinery and equipment, as well as technical personnel, without monetary or any other compensation. This was because all industrial enterprises were under the same unified accounting unit. Thus, the exchanges between or among different enterprises were not commodity transactions. The state could deliberately even out the industrial development in different parts of the country by allocating more resources to the less industrialized areas. That was how industrialization expanded from China's east and northeast, where industries were more developed, to the west and northwest, where barely any industries had existed. Moreover, all workers of state-owned enterprises were paid according to the same wage scale, with small adjustments made accounting for the regional differences in the cost of living. This also had an equalizing effect on workers' standard of living across the whole country. Under collective ownership, equalization did take place within a collective unit, especially within the basic account unit, the productive team. Within the productive team, the worth of each work point was the same, but the number of work points earned from a day of labor by its members still ranged between 4 to 10, depending on the physical strength and technical skills required. Within a productive brigade, the levels of income among the teams were only somewhat equalized because team members shared what the brigade and the commune was able to provide. On a much wider scale, equalization did not take place across different communes in different regions. Instead, collective ownership resulted in polarization. The rich communes in rich regions became relatively richer, and the poor communes in more backward regions became relatively poorer. 
During the early 1970s, when rural industrialization began, the income gaps between the richer and poorer communes, as well as the gap in the rates of development, increased. In developing socialism in countries where productive forces are at a low level of development, it is necessary to maintain the two-type ownership. But for how long? In Mao's A Critique of Soviet Economics, he posed the question in point 19, is long-term coexistence between two types of socialist ownership possible? He agreed with the Soviet textbook that a socialist state and socialist construction couldn't be established on two different economic bases for any length of time. He said, quote, We therefore extend the logic to reach the following conclusion. The socialist state and socialist construction cannot be established for any great length of time on the basis of ownership by the whole people and the ownership by the collective as two different bases of ownership, unquote. He continued to say that in the Soviet Union, the period of coexistence had lasted too long and that, quote, the contradictions between the two types of ownership are in reality contradictions between workers and peasants, unquote. The contradictions between workers and peasants were contradictions among the people that resulted from the coexistence of two types of ownership necessary due to the low level of development. During the socialist transition in advanced capitalist countries, however, there would not be a need for the coexistence of two types of ownership. Advanced capitalist countries would face challenges that are different from that of China and other less developed countries. China was and still is a very large and very diverse country. Before liberation, there had been very little industrial development, and the differences in the level of agricultural development in different parts of the country were mostly due to their natural endowments, the richness of the soil, the availability of water, and the climate. Trading centers that had land and water transportation became very prosperous. For example, the Yangtze River Delta was traditionally rich in agricultural production due to its moderate weather, rich soil, and plentiful water resources. Before liberation, this area also led the nation in industrial production in cities such as Shanghai. A city like Shanghai had the advantage of being a seaport where most trade with the outside took place, and it was also connected to China's vast interior by land and water transportation. During socialist development, the unified state ownership of industrial enterprises in different geographic areas, with differences in productive facilities and technological sophistication, were evened out or equalized. With more advanced enterprises helping less advanced enterprises. Since these enterprises belong to a single owner, resources could be moved around according to an economic plan, and there was no need to compensate the more advanced enterprises for helping less advanced enterprises. On the other hand, the collective ownership, though better than private ownership, in the countryside, created not only polarization among communes and regions, but also contradictions between the state sector and the collective sector. These contradictions could not be easily resolved when the two types of ownership existed side by side, this posed an important challenge for development. It is easier to understand the complexities of the situation by examining some concrete issues. 
One major issue was how to produce enough food for the Chinese people. There was a large gap in grain production between different regions. Grain production was high in the Yangtze River Delta area and in China's southern provinces, while in other areas, grain production was much lower due to the poor quality of land and scarce water resources. These areas did not produce enough grain to feed the people. Therefore, grain had to be shipped from the areas where there were surpluses to areas where grain supplies were insufficient. During socialist development, great emphasis was placed on self-reliance both on the national and on regional levels. Peasants in poor areas worked extremely hard to be self-sufficient in food. However, the country as a whole still had to depend on grain and other agricultural output from rich agricultural areas. Therefore, the state, looking after the interests of the whole nation, had to persuade the communes and the rich agricultural areas to continue putting more resources into agriculture in order to ship food to poor agricultural areas. As stated earlier, areas rich in agriculture were also more developed in industry. Agricultural production has lower rates of return compared to industrial development. The interest of the collectives in the rich areas was to invest more in industries for faster and higher returns. However, the state regulated that they had to retain 40% of their earnings to be invested in agriculture and in their welfare fund. The production brigade and communes that owned the industrial enterprises followed the regulations, but not without resentment. During my trip to China in 1979, when the capitalist reform had just begun, I visited a production brigade of a rich commune in a rich county. This brigade owned a light bulb factory, which was established in the mid-1960s when China's agriculture stabilized after three difficult years, 1959 through 1961. During the early years, the factory only had enough money to rent three rooms to produce simple light bulbs. By 1979, it was producing a large variety of light bulbs, including light bulbs for automobiles, fluorescent lights, and many others. The factory under the collective ownership had the characteristics of a capitalist enterprise. It was eager to expand its market so it could increase its sales and enlarge its revenue. This collectively owned industry and others like it found their relationship with the state restrictive. Beginning in the mid-1960s, Many of these collectively owned industrial enterprises sprouted up in rich communes and there was not enough time to incorporate them into the national economic plan as quickly as they developed. I do not have enough information to conclusively prove this was the fact, but the criticisms launched against these enterprises lend my assessment validity. The criticism of these brigade-slash-commune-owned industrial enterprises charged that in order to acquire raw materials, they went through private connections to get what they needed from the state enterprises. This kind of criticism usually came from the left, which disliked what was going on, but did not know how to resolve the contradiction. They often used the wrong tactics by blocking these kinds of dealings through criticism and enforcing new rules. The actions of the left, some might call them ultra-left, further alienated these enterprises. The lightbulb factory was likely to be a strong supporter of Deng's capitalist reform. 
The manager of the light bulb factory told me that after the capitalist reform began, they were very happy that a business in Hong Kong came to order Christmas lights from them. A collectively owned small factory found the opportunity to expand its production through new policies under Deng's reform. There are many more examples like this light bulb factory. It is important for us to identify the forces in China that supported Deng's capitalist reform. It is a mistake to think Deng did it single-handedly as if he possessed some magic power. China's success in making revolution and developing socialism depended on the strong alliance between the workers and peasants. During socialist construction, the CCP was able to use state policies to strengthen their alliance when the economic base was under the coexistence of state ownership and collective ownership. These policies resolved the contradictions between the agricultural and industrial sectors, which in reality were contradictions between workers and peasants. Resolving contradictions between workers and peasants was easier when the economy was just beginning to develop. However, as the economy developed further in the 1970s, the contradictions became more numerous and complex. See below. In the meantime, those who opposed socialism manipulated the contradictions and opportunistically turned them into contradictions between the people and the enemy. Low Level of Development and Other Contradictions Among the People The low level of productive forces pose challenges resulting in contradictions among the people. These kinds of contradictions can be resolved by putting appropriate and timely policies in place. Concretely, in China, when the output level was very low, one challenge was finding the right relationship between accumulation and consumption. For example, in order to speed up development in agriculture, enough resources had to be accumulated into agricultural machinery and equipment, building infrastructure and land improvement. On the other hand, as a poor country, there was an urgent need to provide adequate food and other necessities of life for the people. In 1959, right after the communes were established, Mao saw the contradiction between accumulation and consumption as a serious issue and quickly applied the appropriate policy to resolve it. In 1958, there were good harvests. The production of grain and other agricultural products went up, yet the state had problems fulfilling its purchasing quotas in grain and other products. Mao went to Zhengzhou, Henan, to investigate the problem in 1959 and gave three talks during the Zhengzhou Agricultural Conference in February and March of 1959. In these talks, he reported what he found and suggested solutions. Mao explained that the reason behind the difficulty in fulfilling the government's purchasing quotas was that peasants reported lower production figures than the actual amounts they had harvested. He found that the peasants underreported to avoid paying more taxes and or other levies imposed on them from higher yields. According to Mao's estimate, if peasants had reported their production honestly, then after taxes and other levies, the peasants would have only 30 to 35% of their production left for their own consumption. By not reporting the real production numbers, the peasants were able to retain another 10 to 15% of what they had produced. Mao described the six layers of administration units above the production team. The central government, or state, the provincial government, the regional government, the county government, 
the commune, and the brigade. After deductions made by all of the different levels of government, the peasants only retain 30% of their production. He said the level of taxes and other levies was too high. They amounted to taking away peasants' production without compensation. Mao stood on the side of the peasants, saying that the peasants had a right to guard what was theirs and supported their action to falsify their production numbers. His suggestions to resolve the contradiction was to first consider how much the peasants would need to live and then calculate the amount of taxes and levies. He believed that the peasants should be able to keep 50% of their production for their consumption, state taxes limited to 7 to 10%, and the commune accumulation fund limited to around 15 to 18%, with the remaining funds allocated for other administrative expenses. Mao advised the communes not to be too eager to invest in agricultural machinery and equipment and build large-scale infrastructure so the amount collected for the accumulation fund could be reduced. He also put forth that paid administrators at different levels of government should be kept at an absolute minimum. He specifically mentioned that artists and cultural groups should continue their work in agricultural production, encourage cadres to understand the lives of ordinary peasants by visiting and staying with them, and emphasize the importance of a close relationship between the cadres and peasants. There was also dissatisfaction in poorer communes. As explained earlier, the productive team first paid taxes to the state and then paid the commune to cover the accumulation and welfare funds. A portion of the rest was distributed to team members as quota grain. The leftovers were used to pay team members according to the work points they earned during the year. The problem with the very poor commune-slash-teams was that the total income of the team was so meager that often after all deductions were made, there was little left for distribution according to work points earned. In those teams-slash-communes, people who worked hard all year would not receive much above the quota grain that everyone received. As a result, they did not receive any compensation for their labor. This did not fulfill the distribution principle of, quote, to each according to their labor, unquote. According to William Hitton's assessment, by the time the communes were dissolved in 1985, one-third of all communes had done exceedingly well, the third in the middle had done well, but the bottom third had done poorly. With the exception of the very poor teams, each member received an income according to work points accumulated from the labor they contributed. However, at the national level, the worth of one day's labor differed tremendously among rich and poor communes. The worth of one day's labor in rich communes could be ten times as much as that of the poor communes. The collective ownership of the means of production could only equalize the income within the team and somewhat within the brigade and the commune, but not among different communes or across different regions. In fact, during China's socialist development, in the countryside the rich got richer and the poor got poorer. The rich communes and the poor communes face very different sets of problems. Therefore, there could not be one single solution. The worker-peasant alliance policies during the land reform and during the collectivization of agriculture had been applied more or less uniformly in different parts of the countryside, but by the early 1970s, there was no policy that could be applied with such uniformity to deal with all of the new situations. 
Due to the diverse conditions in different parts of China's countryside, an appropriate worker-peasant alliance policy for rich regions would have to be very different from that of poor regions. The more differentiated the levels of development in China's countryside, the more complicated and individualized the policy needed to be. Another contradiction among the people related to the low level of development of productive forces was that some production team members sought opportunities to earn some money outside of their work points earned from tending the land, planting and harvesting. Since commodity exchanges still existed at different levels of the communes, there were opportunities to earn extra income from trading. Additionally, each farm household still had a private lot. Peasants used these private lots to grow some vegetables and to raise a couple of pigs and chickens to supplement their diet. The low level of productive forces meant that the worth of each work point remained low, so the opportunity to produce more in the private plots and sell the extra products in the free markets was very attractive. This provided the capitalist roaders the opportunity to propagate their policy of, quote, Sanzi Yi Bao, unquote, three selfs and one contract, which meant a policy. One, to enlarge the private plots of land. Two, to expand the free markets. Three, for peasant households to sign contracts with the government, which would stipulate the prices and quantities of grain the peasant households were obligated to sell. The contract allowed peasants to keep whatever they made above the amount stipulated in the contract as, quote, profit, unquote, and suffered a, quote, loss, unquote, when sales did not cover the costs. Advocates of this policy claim that it would motivate peasants to work harder and produce more. Mao opposed this policy. It was obvious that if the private lots and free markets continued to expand, peasants would spend more and more time and labor on their private plots, and eventually collective ownership would collapse. Peasant families would go back to farming their own small pieces of land, wiping out all the infrastructure built under the three-tiered commune ownership, and rendering the machinery and equipment bought from the accumulation fund useless, because it would have been impossible to divide and distribute them to individual households. This happened as described after the capitalist reform. See question 7. Yet the private plots and the free markets were still needed for the time being. Only when the productive forces reached a higher level, when the work points earned from one day of work on the collectively owned land was worth more than a day's work on the family's private lot, would peasants no longer focus their efforts on their private plots. Before reaching that level of development, private plots could not be forcibly taken away, nor the free markets closed. In the meantime, as long as the private lots and free market existed, the opponents of socialism continued to try to tear collective ownership apart, as evidenced by Deng Xiaoping's immediate decollectivization of agriculture as soon as he and his supporters seized power. By 1985, the process of decollectivization was complete and Chinese peasants went back to individual farming. Most of the infrastructure peasants had worked so hard to build fell into disrepair. Capitalist propagandists claimed that the problem of socialist China was that political chaos made economic development impossible and the economic stagnation made Deng's capitalist reform necessary. In fact, the exact opposite was true. The productive forces developed very rapidly, and such development created new contradictions, 
which were not resolved in a timely fashion. These contradictions meant that workers and peasants no longer had a strong unified material basis on which to solidify their alliance. The CCP's sound worker-peasant alliance policies gave the working people the solid foundation to win the Revolutionary War and to build a socialist country. However, under the collective ownership and how it was linked to state ownership, China's countryside developed rapidly but unevenly. The uneven development of China's countryside made it very difficult and complicated to advance the worker-peasant alliance. In less developed countries where peasants are the majority of the working population, the strength of working people can only be as strong as the unity between workers and peasants. Those in the CCP who favored capitalist development for China took advantage of the weakening unity between workers and peasants and made their own alliances with those who saw their own potential for capitalist development. When building socialism with a low level of productive forces, capitalist elements continue to be part of the development. When commodity production continues to exist and even expands in scope, the law of value plays a role. The law of value manifested in the contradictions among the people, which could then transform into contradictions between the people and the enemy, necessitating the two-line struggle. Of course, two-line struggle will also exist in socialist development in imperialist countries where the productive forces are already fully developed. However, that two-line struggle will be different. The two-line struggle in socialist development in countries with fully developed productive forces will probably be concentrated in the superstructure and not so much in the economic base. In countries where productive forces are still at a low level of development, the two-line struggle is more concentrated in the economic base where two types of ownership coexist and commodity production continues to expand. China faced this critical challenge during its socialist development. This is still a preliminary analysis and much more work and discussion are needed to understand the role of the law of value when commodity production continues to exist and expand. The problem of restricting the power of cadres in state-owned industrial enterprises. One of the biggest challenges faced by any country during the socialist transition is how to restrict the power of cadres who are in charge of the state-owned enterprises. This challenge is not limited to the less developed countries like China. Countries whose productive forces are fully developed would also face the same challenge. How cadres use power bestowed by the state is of critical importance. Whether they use their power to serve the socialist cause or to become the agents of capital determines the direction of the transition. In China, concrete measures limited the power of the cadres in state enterprises. The most important measure was to raise the class consciousness of workers. Especially after the Cultural Revolution, factories adhering to the principles of the on-gang constitution were able to revolutionize industrial organization. The on-gang constitution called for putting proletarian politics in command and articulated concrete methods to transform the relationship between ordinary workers and cadres in leadership. Instead of always following orders given by cadres, workers were given the opportunity to express their opinions and encouraged to take initiative in advancing technological changes. And, of course, permanent employment status 
as opposed to temporary employment under the contract labor system advocated by Liu Shaoqi, made the factory a permanent place for workers. During the socialist period, workers and industrial enterprises had a sense of ownership. When Deng carried out his capitalist reform and the machinery, equipment, and factory buildings were auctioned off, many workers struggled mightily to defend them. However, in the end, they were not strong enough to resist the takeover. For the real changes in the relationship between the cadres and workers to take root, much more time and more fundamental change would be needed because the division and the responsibilities of the cadres and the workers remain largely unchanged. The cadres continued their core responsibility of dispersing funds appropriated by the state, including funds for current operations, investments, and wages. The dispersing of these different kinds of funds represented real power. During the socialist period, the overwhelming majority of cadres did everything they could to, quote, serve the people, unquote, and did not cross boundaries to abuse the power they possessed. Part of the reason was that they did not abandon their principles and continued to put public interests above their own self-interest. Additionally, they understood that those who held higher positions in the government and devoted themselves to work for the benefit of the people would not tolerate graft and bribery. Moreover, due to repeated mass movements, they were very aware that they were under the watchful eyes of the workers and the masses. However, this does not negate the reality of their power and the temptation to use it for self-interest. Many of these cadres supported Deng's capitalist reform. Deng's capitalist reform legitimized turning managers' power into personal wealth. It opened the floodgates of tremendous amounts of wealth to be siphoned from state enterprises into the pockets of these former cadres. Further discussion will follow in question 7. At the end of the Liberation War, how to transfer power possessed by members of the Communist Party who held important positions in managing the state to the vast number of masses was and continues to be one of the biggest challenges to all those who take up the task of building socialism. China's experience has shown that class struggle continues after liberation. The outcome of this struggle determines the direction of the transition, socialist or capitalist. In 1976, the strength of the bourgeoisie was stronger than that of the proletariat. Forces representing the proletariat were defeated. The direction of the transition was reversed from socialism to capitalism. As Mao once said, on the long road to final victory, there will be many twists and turns, but the future is always bright. The proletariat has to analyze and evaluate reasons for each defeat and be prepared for the continuation of the struggle. The brief analysis above on the challenges China faced during the socialist transition points out only the most obvious. It is far from complete. More research is needed. I believe that revolutionaries today, whose goal is to build a brand new socialist society, need to spend time and effort to thoroughly study China's concrete experiences, where workers and peasants successfully built a socialist society, but were ultimately defeated. Question 7. What has happened to China and Chinese people after the counter-revolutionary seized power in 1976. Seizing political power and implementing capitalist reform. 
After Mao Zedong died in September 1976, a group of capitalists within the Chinese Communist Party staged a coup, arrested the Gang of Four, Jiang King, Yao Wenyun, Zhang Kunkao, and Wang Hongwen, and seized political power. The new regime propagated their version of the historical development of the revolution and denounced the Cultural Revolution as a mistake Mao made in his old age. After a short period of transition, the new regime officially began its reform at the conclusion of the third plenary session of the 11th Congress of the Chinese Communist Party in December 1978. The new regime, led by Deng Xiaoping, purported to not have a definite plan for its reform and opening up program, claiming it would, quote, cross the river by touching the stones, unquote, meaning the reform would proceed one step at a time without following a grand plan. The reason for this pretense was that Deng tried to avoid making public the concrete capitalist projects he planned to put in place. By examining the concrete policies that Deng's reform enacted, however, one can see it was in fact a well-thought-out and well-integrated plan. The reform put together all the capitalist projects Liu and Deng had attempted to carry out during the 1950s and 1960s without success. Given that experience, Deng knew that when the reform began, they had to disguise the capitalist nature of the projects because people still remembered them. Therefore, they claimed, and have continued to claim, the reform is, quote, socialism with Chinese characteristics, unquote. Deng's reform consisted of two interrelated components, capitalist reform in China and opening up China's economy to link it with the international capitalist system. Within a short amount of time, Deng and his followers began to dismantle the socialist economic and social system built during 1956 through 1976 by fundamentally changing the relations of production as well as the superstructure from socialist to capitalist. The reformers understood that the principal opponents of their reform would be the working people, workers and peasants, so their class strategy was to create disunity among the workers to weaken their power and to break up the close alliance between workers and peasants. During the socialist construction, the state and collective ownership of the means of production was fundamental to the socialist class strategy, the unity of workers and their close alliance with the peasants. To be successful, the capitalist reformers had to attack this economic base. However, since the socialist superstructure supported the socialist economic base, the capitalist reformers had also to fundamentally change the superstructure from socialist to capitalist. Fundamental changes in the relations of production. 1. The industrial sector. The goal of the capitalist reform was to change the former state-owned industrial enterprises, which had been in the process of phasing out commodity production, into privately owned profit-making enterprises. In the process of transforming these industrial enterprises, the reform also changed labor power, which was in the process of being phased out as a commodity during the socialist transition, back into a commodity to be bought and sold. In order to reverse the process of socialist reform discussed in question 2a. During the socialist transition, Liu Shaoqi and Deng Xiaoping made repeated attempts to replace the permanent workers and state-owned enterprises with temporary contract workers. 
But before they seized political power, their attempts were defeated. Liu and Deng saw that the abolishment of permanent employment status in state enterprises would enable peasants to compete with workers for jobs, thus putting downward pressure on wages and benefits of industrial workers. They saw competition among workers and between workers and peasants as key to capital accumulation, which they believed would speed up economic development. Mao, on the other hand, regarded permanent employment as a fundamental right of workers in state enterprises during the socialist era. He correctly saw that permanent employment strengthened the power of workers because it was a prerequisite for workers in state ownership to assert their influence on managing factories in order to eventually lead the factories. If the working class was to become the masters of their socialist country, they had to start by becoming masters of the factories in which they worked. The struggle for permanent employment status versus replacing permanent workers with temporary workers was part of the overall two-line struggle between the socialist forces and the capitalist rotors. During and following the Cultural Revolution, the socialist forces had the upper hand until the capitalists seized power in 1976. In the mid-1980s, when the new regime embarked on its reform of state enterprises to eventually privatize them, new factory managers were given more and more autonomy to run the factories, including the right to hire and fire workers and replace permanent workers with temporary ones. Before the regime began its formal restructuring of state enterprises, management applied all kinds of tactics to divide the workers, including reintroducing, quote, material incentives, unquote, in wage payment, such as paying bonuses and peace wage rates. However, most workers recognized that, quote, material incentives, unquote, which had been criticized during the Cultural Revolution, was a tactic to divide workers and they refused to go along. Workers resisted the reformers' attempt to use material incentives as a tactic to entice them to work faster and compete with one another. During the early 1980s, the rate of inflation went up so, in many factories, workers simply divided up the total amount of bonuses and distributed them equally as a way to soften the impact of the rising cost of living. Question 2a explained how phasing out commodity production was basic to transforming the relations of production in state enterprises. The process of phasing out commodity production in state enterprises meant that production in state enterprises no longer followed the law of value to maximize profits, but rather to produce useful products according to an economic plan. During socialist construction, all state enterprises were under one unified accounting system, and each enterprise no longer calculated their own, quote, revenue, unquote, and, quote, cost, unquote, to arrive at its own, quote, profit, unquote, or, quote, loss, unquote. The state bought all their products and supplied all material needed for their production. The state also transferred a, quote, wage fund, unquote, to pay the workers' wages and benefits. The goal of capitalist reform was exactly the opposite. It aimed to transform each state enterprise from producing useful products according to an economic plan into a separate unit, each seeking to maximize its profits and competing against one another for survival. Following the passage of the economic structure reform of industries in 1985, the state began to contract out state enterprises to individuals or teams of managers. 
Who had the opportunity to contract these enterprises? Only those who were in positions of power or those who had close connections with those in power. The new managers of these enterprises were given the authority to separate parts of the enterprise that were not profitable by selling or leasing them and to keep the parts that were profitable for themselves. These new profit-making enterprises were allowed to keep portions of the profits and handed the rest to the state. Later, managers of these new enterprises were allowed to keep all of the profits they made, extracted from the workers' surplus labor, and only paid taxes on their earnings to the state, just like private corporations in other capitalist countries. Today, there are only a few key industries, mostly in national defense or defense-related, public utilities, and transportation that remain under state ownership. Even these enterprises operate like capitalist corporations. The only difference is that they are required to fulfill their obligations to the state. A number of Chinese state and private enterprises had their initial public offering, or IPO, in Hong Kong, the United States, and other countries outside of China. The economic structure reform relinquished the state's economic ownership of most enterprises to private individuals or groups. The reform fundamentally changed the relations of production in the industrial sector. Two, the agricultural sector. As the capitalist reformers proceeded to dismantle the state enterprises and rebuild a labor market where labor power could be bought and sold, they also moved to dissolve the communes in the countryside. The agricultural reform enacted the, quote, family responsibility system, unquote, which redistributed land and other collectively owned properties to individual peasant households. Small-scale rural industries were divided up and then contracted to individuals who had political or family connections. The commune system was formally dismantled in 1984. The centralized state purchasing and marketing system, which was responsible for purchasing and distributing grain and major agricultural products, also ceased to function. The reformers got the support of the peasants by bribing them with a higher purchasing price for grain and for other agricultural products. The price for grain purchases within the set quota went up by an average of 25%, with an additional 50% in bonuses for above quota purchases. From then on, peasants became mostly reliant on the market as the main mechanism to regulate their production. Urban residents no longer received food rations at low prices. Grain production increased rapidly from 1979 through 1984, with an increase of 22.5%. It was during this period that decollectivization took place and was eventually completed in 1984. After the commune was dissolved, prices of all agricultural inputs including chemical fertilizer, water, fuel, and pesticides increased, thus wiping out peasants' gains from higher purchasing prices for their output. Dissolving the communes was a calculated and necessary move for the reformers. Without collective ownership in the countryside, workers could no longer form an alliance with the peasants. The Chinese Communist Party, representing workers, had formed a close alliance with the peasants when fighting the revolutionary and civil wars by promising them land reform. Peasants sacrificed their lives and their loved ones when they joined the Red Army to fight the guerrilla war. Without the peasants, the Chinese Communist Party could not have won the revolution. 
After liberation, the CCP strengthened the Worker-Peasant Alliance by collectivizing agriculture and by carrying out policies that mutually benefited workers and peasants. The strong alliance between workers and peasants was key to socialist construction. When the capitalist reformers broke the Worker-Peasant Alliance by decollectivizing agriculture, they weakened both the worker and peasant resistance against capitalist projects they enacted. 3. Linking the Chinese economy to the international capitalist world market. Deng Xiaoping, the mastermind of the capitalist, quote, reform and opening up, unquote, saw correctly that in order for Chinese capital to grow in strength, it had to cooperate closely with foreign capital. However, since China had suffered a long history of imperialist aggression, some Chinese Communist Party members who supported the reform were concerned about whether China would be strong enough to remain independent while cooperating with foreign capital. In the 1980s and early 1990s, China's negotiations with the GATT, General Agreement on Tariff and Trade, on terms and conditions did not go smoothly, because China did not want to give in too much. By the mid-1990s, and especially after the Asian crisis in 1997, however, the Chinese government had to give up many of the conditions it had insisted upon and join the WTO, our World Trade Organization, at the end of 2001. During the worldwide crisis of overproduction since the late 1970s, monopoly capital urgently needed to find new investment opportunities and to further expand markets for its surpluses. Thatcher and Reagan pushed forward their neoliberal plan by taking down all barriers for capital expansion across national borders worldwide. China's capitalist reformers were just as eager to establish a link with international capital to develop capitalism. Deng bought into the neoliberal ideology of comparative advantage and calculated that China's large pool of disciplined workers could serve as an advantage in the international division of labor by concentrating on exporting labor-intensive products. The reformers saw how Taiwan, Hong Kong, and others used exports of labor-intensive products to spur economic growth and believed China could emulate that model to exponential effect. Furthermore, establishing an outside link would garner external support for their reform. It is important to point out here that although capitalist reform would enable capital to exploit labor, without the, quote, opening up, unquote, component, the surplus value could not be realized in a profit to achieve capital accumulation. Therefore, quote, capitalist reform, unquote, and, quote, opening up, unquote, were both necessary components for capital accumulation for the new capitalists in China. The goal of capitalist, quote, reform and opening up, unquote, was for China's capital to expand and for its capitalist class to gain strength. The strategy has been to cooperate with international monopoly capital to achieve rapid capital accumulation through high-speed economic growth. In order to achieve its goal, the reformers completely disregarded the suffering of the Chinese people and the damage of high GDP growth on China's land, natural resources, and environment. Question 7 will discuss China's capitalist, quote, reform and opening up, unquote, in the context of the world of imperialism and the concurrent struggle of the world's laboring class against international monopoly capital. Fundamental Changes in the Superstructure 
In order to deconstruct socialism and build capitalism, reformers had to fundamentally change the superstructure as well as the economic base. Soon after they seized political power, the new regime rescinded from the Constitution workers' rights to strike and basic democratic rights of the masses, including free expression, that were gained during the Cultural Revolution. During socialist times, Mao advocated that the party should be closely connected with the masses, and the government initiated various mass movements to give the masses the chance to speak out and to express their opinions. The three anti and the five anti movements, the movement to support the Korean War, the Great Leap Forward, and finally the Cultural Revolution, were all launched to mobilize the masses and encourage them to be involved with policies that affected their lives. Through the process of mass movements, the masses understood the meaning of the government policies and their significance. Mao believed that when the masses understood and approved of policies to be implemented, there was a better chance for success. State-sponsored mass movements, such as the ones conducted in socialist China, are historically very unusual because those in power initiated and encouraged the involvement of the masses from below. During the socialist period, periodic mass movements were a method to understand and resolve contradictions in society and move society forward. However, the implementation of policies under the capitalist reform was distinctively different from the past. As a rule, new policies were put in place by passing laws and regulations and then pushing them down to the masses. It's understandable that the reformers did not want to involve the masses because the policies they tried to implement were against their interests. Since the reform aimed to fundamentally change class relations in society, it generated many contradictions. As contradictions intensified, there was no way for workers and peasants to express their dissatisfaction, as in the past, through mass discussion and mass action. By the late 1980s, many of the masses were angered by the corruption of the reformers and the way people were being mistreated. There were also pro-West groups of students who demanded, quote, Western-style democracy, unquote, or bourgeois expressions of individual, quote, freedoms, unquote. Spontaneous demonstrations began to sprout up. The demonstrators mistakenly believed, based on past experience, that the state would listen to their grievances and respond to their demands. This was the period of time when many reform policies were put in place, including policies to welcome foreign investment. In order to show that the new regime had no tolerance for any mass action from below, and threatened by the legions of workers who began organizing to support the initial spontaneous protest, they brutally crushed the demonstrations in many cities during the spring of 1989. On June 4th, the government moved the army into Beijing and killed many of the demonstrators who remained or were fleeing Tiananmen Square. As the government took action, people were genuinely shocked to witness the People's Liberation Army soldiers opening fire and massacring unarmed students and workers. Ideology is, of course, part of the infrastructure. At the same time, the reformers proclaimed themselves communists. They began to propagate capitalist ideology, popularizing slogans such as, quote, let a few get rich first, unquote, and, quote, unemployment is a good thing because workers work hard if they're afraid of losing their jobs, unquote. The reformers designed the new industrial organization by giving the head of the enterprises new authority to run the factories and discipline workers. 
The capitalist reform changed the economic base by taking away people's basic rights to a job, a living wage, health care, housing, retirement, and education. A new set of ideology had to be propagated to justify their policies. The reformers proclaimed that socialism was inefficient because, quote, eating from a big pot breeds laziness, unquote. Soon after the reform began, entrance examinations to higher education were reinstated. The new education policies concentrated on cultivating a new elite that would separate themselves from the workers and peasants and prepare to be future rulers. Mao's, quote, three big mountains oppressing Chinese people, unquote, feudalism, imperialism, and bureaucratic capitalism, under the reform became housing reform, healthcare reform, and education reform. After 30 years of socialism and 40 years of reform, most workers and peasants have seen through the guise. They say, quote, what we have now is not socialism with Chinese characteristics, it is actually capitalism with Chinese characteristics, unquote. Fundamental changes in superstructure are as important as fundamental changes in the economic base. During socialist times, most of the delegates to the National People's Congress were workers and peasants. Today, National People's Congress delegates are business owners and intellectuals. They are all of considerable wealth. The last National People's Congress in March 2019 had its annual meeting in Beijing and the delegates were guarded with special security fences. Someone commented, quote, the people's delegates must be kept away from the people, unquote. The All-China Women's Federation made significant contributions towards gender equality during socialist times. It promoted model women workers and peasants in equal pay for equal work, which raised many women's pay to that of men. After the reform, it has not done anything to protect women's legal rights or to protect women's workers from being abused and or assaulted. It no longer advocates for women to, quote, hold up half the sky, unquote, as an expression of women's power during socialism. The current Women's Federation promotes classes that teach petite bourgeois women how to cook and decorate their houses. China's capitalist, quote, reform and opening up, unquote, and the world of imperialism. One, China's high rates of GDP growth. During the 40 years of capitalist, quote, reform and opening up, unquote, China's GDP grew at very impressive rates. In 15 of the 40 years, its real rates of GDP growth were in the double digits, from 10% to as high as 15.2%, averaging around 9% per year during the four decades. There is a general agreement that the official China's growth rates need to be discounted by 2%. Even though in more recent years, China's GDP growth has slowed to 6 to 7%, it has still been quite a bit above the GDP growth of advanced capitalist countries and other developing countries. It's fair to say that the high rate of GDP growth is an accomplishment of the Chinese reform. However, it is necessary for us to understand how such rates of growth were achieved and at what cost. The continuing high rates of growth elevated China to become the second highest GDP-producing country in the world, second only to the United States. This change has had significant consequences on the world of imperialism, both on global monopoly capital and on the international working class. Moreover, 
The consequences of high rates of GDP growth on China as a country and on its people are tremendous and far-reaching. Capitalists all over the world and, of course, in China, celebrate the great success of China's reform. How do we, contemporary revolutionaries, evaluate China's reform from a broad, long-term perspective? Technically speaking, China's high GDP growth came from a combination of high rates of export and investment growth. GDP is the aggregate of consumer spending, C, investment spending, I, government spending, G, and net exports, exports minus imports, or X minus I. GDP equals C plus I plus G plus X minus I. China's high GDP growth was mainly derived from high net export growth rates and of high investment growth rates. Both of these high rates of growth were accomplished by calculated policies of international monopoly capital and by the new Chinese regime representing the new capitalist class. The cooperation between them formally began at the end of 2001, when China joined the WTO and agreed to play by the rules determined by international monopoly capital. From then on, they both competed and cooperated. The capitalist, quote, reform and opening up, unquote, linked China to world imperialism. Its GDP was able to grow at amazingly high rates through high export growth rates and high investment growth rates. Below, we will see how these high rates were accomplished and discuss their consequences. Two, the new international division of labor and China's export growth. The international division of labor among countries before World War II and up to the 1970s was very clear. The imperialist countries produced industrial goods and sold them to colonial and semi-colonial countries, while the colonial and semi-colonial countries supplied raw materials and energy needed for the industrialization in imperialist countries. The imperialist countries used any means necessary, including military invasion and occupation, to stop colonial and semi-colonial countries from industrialization so they could maintain their domination over the sources of material and energy they needed for their industries, and at the same time, maintain and expand the market for their industrial products. Ceaselessly searching for raw materials and energy and relentlessly pushing to expand markets have been the reasons for endless wars, brutal pillage, and destruction of people and land in the modern era. By the second half of the 1970s, imperialism was in crisis. The rate of growth stagnated. There were serious problems of overcapacity in all fields of manufacturing due to overinvestment and inadequate aggregate demand. In other words, it was not that people did not need more material goods to satisfy their needs, but that they did not have the money to buy them. Under capitalism, the markets do not recognize needs. Needs only count when backed with purchasing power to become demand. The grain stores overflow, but people are hungry. Additionally, organized workers in imperialist countries grew in strength, and they fought for higher wages and better benefits, both of which aid in the corporation profits. A new strategy of capital accumulation was urgently needed. Thus began the neoliberal strategy of capital accumulation that started with the policies of Thatcher and Reagan, designed by global monopoly capital. The neoliberal strategy was and is to liberalize capital 
by breaking down all the barriers across national borders for capital investment and trade. The content of neoliberal imperialism included privatization, liberalization, and deregulization. These concrete policies intended to and succeeded in breaking down the barriers in colonial and semi-colonial countries set up to resist foreign trade and foreign investment. Privatization aimed to dissolve nationally owned industries in these countries for foreign companies to acquire. Liberalization and deregulation lowered restrictions on foreign capital, including rules to protect labor and the environment. In 1995, the World Trade Organization, or WTO, was established to replace the General Agreement on Tariff and Trade, or GATT. The WTO broadened its scope to include not only tariff and trade, but also cross-border investment of multinational corporations. By this time, Western corporations, especially U.S. corporations, had already expanded their investment into other countries. Neoliberal strategy has helped increase the speed and extend the scope of the expansion of multinational corporations and facilitate a new international division of labor. When international monopoly capital was free to go wherever it wanted, it gave multinational corporations the freedom to select their production location. Moreover, with the help of international trade and investment organizations, such as the WTO and the International Monetary Fund, these powerful multinational corporations grasped the power to internationalize their production and the freedom to split up the production of each product to be produced in different countries. With the internationalization of production came the new international division of labor. Imperialist countries no longer wanted the exclusive rights to produce industrial products. Instead, colonized and semi-colonial countries would receive orders to produce parts of a product or certain categories of products. Thus, since the late 20th century, the internationalization of production added another dimension of imperialist aggression and exploitation to the pillaging of raw material and energy from colonial and semi-colonial countries and the push to further expand markets. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD, describes how international production, trade, and investments are increasingly organized today within, quote, global value chains, unquote, or GVCs, where different stages of the production process are located across different countries. According to OECD, setting up the global value chain, quote, motivates companies to restructure their operations internationally through outsourcing offshoring of activities, unquote. The grand design of GVCs is made within the powerful multinational corporations with careful considerations regarding trade and financial arrangements. Countries where production actually takes place do not have any say in this grand design. They can only compete with one another by offering the multinationals the best conditions, including the low tax rates, even tax exemption for extended periods, high allowance for profit repatriation, suitable infrastructure for transporting goods, simplified bureaucratic procedure, little or no environmental regulation, basic education and appropriate training for workers, and strict rules against labor organizing, and state repression to enforce such rules. Additionally, multinational corporations also enjoy the right to leave all of their production waste on foreign soil. 
China's capitalist reform and how it linked China to international monopoly capital came at an opportune time. But the timing was not something that happened by chance. Back in the 1960s, four client states or territories of the United States, Taiwan, South Korea, Hong Kong, and Singapore, were chosen as a testing ground for the export-led growth model. Multinational corporations from the U.S. and Japan invested in these countries or territories for the sole purpose of exporting their products. The export-led growth strategy created the myth that when developing countries increase their exports at all costs, growth and prosperity surely follows. In fact, the export-led growth benefited the imperialist countries and their monopoly capital far more than the countries that adopted this strategy. In the 1970s, the United States passed environmental protection laws, and companies that wanted to circumvent these laws and take advantage of cheap labor moved their production to Taiwan, South Korea, etc. Two large corporations, RCA and Atari, are good examples. These companies and many others that followed seriously polluted Taiwan's natural environment and severely injured the workers who worked with toxic materials in the factories. Workers' struggles against RCA for justice for the serious and potentially fatal health consequences they suffered continue today. In the meantime, RCA has been sold and has become part of a French company. Deng Xiaoping praised Taiwan's export-led growth model and vowed that China could do better with its exponentially larger labor force. His famous Southern Investigation Tour cemented the strategy of export-led growth for China. Shenzhen, originally a fishing village, was chosen to be the center of production for exports. Today, Shenzhen, together with the rest of Pearl River Delta, has become the industrial hub of 4.2 million people, most of who migrated from all over China and where the notorious Foxconn company is headquartered. The concrete example of the making of iPhones shows how the new International Division of Labor benefited Apple, an American high-tech multinational. Apple introduced its new product in 2007 and sold 3 million iPhones that year, 5.3 million the next, and 11 million in 2009. A working paper published by the Asian Development Bank in 2011 gave a breakdown of how Apple benefited from parceling out its production through a global value chain. The iPhone was assembled in China with its different components produced in the United States, Japan, and South Korea. The working paper showed that the completed iPhone sold in the United States for $500 in 2009. $178.96 of the $500 was actual manufacturing cost, and the rest, or $321, was what it called the gross profit. Gross profit might not be an accurate term, because it included the cost of selling the iPhone, including advertising costs. A large proportion of the $178.96 of the manufacturing cost was what Foxconn paid for importing parts from the above-mentioned countries and a small profit accrued by Foxconn after subtracting other production-related costs. Worker wages in each assembled iPhone constituted only $6.50, a merely 3.6% of the total manufacturing costs. In addition to the extremely polluting production of crude steel, so too is the production of the inordinate amounts of clothing, shoes, 
toys, bicycles, air conditioner units, washing machines, solar panels, and many other household items produced solely for the purpose for export. All these products are exported and arrive in the U.S. and other imperialist countries clean and free of pollutants. The toxic waste is left behind. Rarely do we see the analysis that relates China's pollution problem to the role China has played in the international division of labor in the current capitalist system. However, a recent article, A Dirty Secret China's Greatest Imports, Carbon Emission, by Earth, is worth noting. The article begins with, quote, The U.S. and much of the Western world have a dirty secret. While we claim to be working diligently to decrease our emissions and switch to cleaner, non-fossil fuel energies, we are actually just exporting emissions to other countries, most notably China, unquote. The article explains that while, quote, the world turns toward China to be its dirty manufacturer, we all clean up our books, pushing our emissions and energy consumption onto them. We let China produce and ship our goods, and then say, who, me? I don't produce emissions. I've cut mine. China is to blame, unquote. The article continues to say that the United States has been decreasing its total energy consumption, dropping from 359 BTU per person per year in 1978 to 308 BTU per person per year in 2009. And while it has reduced its coal consumption from 50% to 45% of its electricity fuel mix, it has increased its coal exports from 26 million short tons in 2009 to 40 million short tons in 2010, reaching 10% of its total coal production. U.S. coal exports to China during the first half of 2010 was 1,000 times that of the first half of 2009. The article continues to say that researchers have determined that approximately 1 billion tons of carbon dioxide emissions in China are from the production of products destined for export to other countries. 3. High-level and high-growth-rate investment is unsustainable. High levels and high rates of investment growth have been the other important contributors for China's high GDP growth rate. On November 27, 2012, the IMF published a working paper entitled, Is China Overinvesting and Does It Matter? The article stated that in 2012, the rate of investment in China reached 50% of GDP, and it explored the problems related to overinvestment. It asserted that China's investment level was already high in 2007, and when the Great Recession hit the world in 2008 through 2009, the Chinese government began to implement a rescue plan of $586 billion, which was spent on a wide range of infrastructure investment projects. Thus, investment as percentage of GDP was further raised by 2012 to over 50%. In any country, imperialist or colonial-slash-semi-colonial, a 20% of GDP investment rate is considered very high. The government spent the rescue package by vastly expanding infrastructure. The high rates of investment resulted in overcapacities in many industries. One example was overcapacity in the solar panel industry. According to an article published by McKinsey and Company on China's great rebalancing promise and peril, in less than a decade, China's solar panel industry went from non-existent 
to become dominant in the world. The 10 largest Chinese manufacturers today account for more than 60% of global solar panel production, and in 2010, 96% of the solar panels China produced were exported. The article continues to say the problem of this growth was almost entirely production-driven. Solar panel production is also highly polluting. Additionally, housing stock expanded rapidly, reaching a level far above people's ability to buy, causing the fear of a housing bubble burst. From the government rescue package came the extensive construction of the transportation network, which included 30,000 kilometers, or 18,600 miles, of high-speed railway, and 35,000 kilometers, or 22,000 miles, of highways. The major infrastructure construction facilitated the flow of goods and people. At the same time, tremendous waste resulted from overbuilding. Many four-lane highways built in small towns are still deserted, while whole cities and towns with rows and rows of residential and commercial buildings, roads, hotels, and exhibition centers stand empty. This overinvestment has represented an extreme imbalance in the Chinese economy and caused tremendous damage to China's natural environment. Despite the efforts made by the government to rebalance China's economy to correct the low level of domestic consumption, the level has stayed unchanged at around 40% of GDP. The level of consumption cannot be raised because of the low wages of Chinese workers. The detrimental effects on China's environment from 40 years of capitalist development will be discussed later, but overinvestment has certainly been a contributor. One shocking figure can help illustrate the environmental impact of overinvestment. China's cement consumption in three years from 2011 to 2013 was more than the U.S. cement consumption in the entire 20th century. 4. China has become an imperialist country. The growth of Chinese monopolies and rapid expansion of foreign investment. It was during the high rates of investment in the past 10 years that China's GDP grew exponentially. China's economy almost tripled in size from 2008 to 2018, with GDP reaching $13.6 trillion. Compared with the GDP of Japan, in 2008, China's GDP was 50% smaller, but by 2016, China's GDP was 2.3 times larger than that of Japan. During this decade, China's industries went through mergers and acquisitions and became major giant-sized global corporations. In 2018, China had 120 companies on the Fortune 500 list, just behind the U.S., which had 126 companies. And ahead of Japan, which only had 52 companies listed, Chinese capital has definitely become monopoly capital. As China has expanded its GDP and has exported large volumes of products abroad, it has needed more raw materials, including minerals, lumber, and cotton, and energy to feed the production of these products. China became a dominant player in the energy sector by 2008. In 2017, China surpassed the United States and became the largest crude oil importer. The quest for oil and raw materials has been one important reason to further expand its foreign investment. Another reason for China's expansion of its foreign investment was that, since 2008, China ran out of places for further infrastructure building. 
China announced its ambitious One Belt, One Road initiative, BRI, in October 2013 to expand its infrastructure investment overseas and to secure its huge demand for energy and raw materials, as well as to create commercial relations to expand markets for Chinese exports. BRI clearly expressed China's ambition to expand its influence in commerce and trade, as well as in the political sphere. The BRI framework calls for open cooperation and direct foreign investments, FDI, designed to lay the infrastructure and industrial foundations to secure and solidify China's relations with 68 countries on three continents. The BRI, once complete, will reach more than 60% of the global population, account for nearly one-third of the world's GDP in global trade, and 75% of its known energy reserves. Under this plan, China will be linked to Europe through Central Asia and Russia, to the Middle East through Central Asia, and to Southeast Asia, South Asia, and the Indian Ocean via both land and sea routes. The BRI involves the funding and construction of a system of roads, railways, oil and natural gas pipelines, fiber optic and communication systems, ports, and airports that will have implications on global energy security in the coming decades. So far, China has built and paid for seven dams in Cambodia, which generate half of the electricity in that country. Sri Lanka borrowed $1 billion from China to build a deep water port. China owns it and is leasing it to Sri Lanka for the next 99 years. South Africa borrowed $1.5 billion to build a coal-fired power plant, one of 63 such power plants China has built around the world. Zambia borrowed $94 million to build a large soccer stadium. So far, the total amount of China's investments and loans is still rather small, but China possesses large stores of U.S. dollars and other foreign currencies and has the potential to expand foreign investment along the BRI and beyond. 5. The Impact of China's Development in the Past 40 Years Following 30 years of socialism, China joined the world of imperialism and has become an imperialist country. This development has tremendously benefited international monopoly capital. China has provided a space for international monopoly to expand and a space for overflowing commodities, generated by the fevered capacity to produce, thus helping moderate the crisis of the capital system for the time being. However, this development has been destructive to the international working class and has further deteriorated the world's natural environment. China's large workforce, joining the International Division of Labor, exerted strong downward pressure on the wages in all countries, especially in imperialist countries. Capitalists and imperialist countries have been able to take advantage of global production and shipped manufacturing jobs to China and other countries that followed its model. This development at least partially explains the stagnated wages and reduced benefits in the United States and other imperialist countries. In the neoliberal phase of imperialism, where capital is free to choose its location of production, it has become increasingly difficult for workers to engage capital in their struggles for higher wages and better benefits. Capital can simply pack up and leave. During the past several decades, workers in the United States have not been able to make any advances or even defend what they once fought for and won. 
As wages started to rise in China from strong demand for labor in the last decade, due to fast-growing GDP and export manufacturing, businesses moved from China's coastal provinces to smaller cities in central China to seek lower wages. Overseas investors from Taiwan and Hong Kong that had contracted local businesses to produce began moving to other low-wage countries, such as Sri Lanka and Bangladesh, for textile and clothing production. Many local business owners who lost their contracts simply closed down their shops and disappeared with unpaid wages owed to workers and unpaid loans owed to the banks. Low-wage Foxconn workers who made iPhones for Apple now work for Hui, a Chinese-owned high-tech firm that outcompeted Apple in the Chinese market. Now Hui just found the new place for its production and marketing, India. In the process of China becoming another imperialist country, international monopoly has gained and the international working class has lost. China provided the imperialist world with large numbers of industrial workers, thus lowering wages for monopoly capital. Moreover, China exported low-priced consumer goods to other imperialist countries, dampening the pressure of inflation. However, the growth of China's immense industrial workforce will eventually strengthen the international working class. The new international division of labor has created greater potential for uniting working class struggles across all countries. It is up to the proletariat to seize the opportunity to realize such potential. China's capitalist, quote, reform and opening up, unquote, gave international monopoly capital the opportunity to incorporate China into the world of imperialism. It came at an opportune time to rescue global capitalism from its crisis. Now, 40 years later, with added capacity for production and the generation of even bigger surpluses, the crisis of global capitalism has only become deeper and more entrenched. Additionally, the global environmental crisis has worsened and become more critical. China's Capitalist Reform and Opening Up in China's Working Class Struggles During the 40 years of capitalist, quote, reform and opening up, unquote, China's new ruling class created a large, perhaps the largest, army of the unemployed in history by any measurable standard. At the same time, the reform transformed hundreds of millions of peasants into the fastest-growing population of industrial workers. In the past four decades, the focal point of class struggle has shifted from the old industrial centers during the socialist construction to the center of export industries located in the southern coastal cities. During the same 40 years, Chinese society went through tremendous changes, which have resulted in deep internal contradictions that have permeated throughout China's cities and countryside. These contradictions in Chinese society have manifested in different intense struggles, which will be discussed in another section. 1. The reform created a large army of unemployed. In the 1990s, former state-owned factories went through rounds of restructuring that laid off tens of millions of workers, who only received a very small monthly payment below the minimum amount needed to subsist. The newly unemployed workers were also deprived of any health care. Hospitals and health clinics that previously provided medical care to workers began charging high fees to cover their own costs, as required by the reform. In 2004, I visited Shenyang, which had been a flourishing industrial city in northeast China 
where heavy industry had been concentrated. By that time, it looked like a ghost town where stores, nurseries, barber shops, and bathhouses were all shut down. Unemployed workers lined the street, selling a few household items including family pets for cash, but nobody was buying. These workers displayed for hire signs offering to work any odd job, but no one could afford to hire them. A friend who accompanied me on the trip took me to the home of an unemployed worker. Everyone in the household, the husband, the wife, and the son, were all unemployed. The family tried to make a few RMB, Chinese dollars, by selling some food items on the street, but the small cart they had bought was overturned by strong wind and everything was lost. The husband told me that he suffered from very bad stomach pain. When he went to the hospital, the doctor ordered an expensive test, and after paying for the test, he had no money left to buy the medicine. The wife was a factory worker all of her adult life, but her job was terminated. The son was over 30 years old and a discharged soldier. He said that he felt his life was over. Tens of millions of laid-off workers in many industrial cities all over China were in similar situations. All of them tried to find a way to eke out a living. Some did succeed as street vendors, taxi drivers, or food servers. Many women became prostitutes. Like their third-world sisters and brothers, they became part of the underground economy. These former proud factory workers have to constantly look for buyers for their labor power just to survive. At the same time, they face relentless harassment and abuse from the police. The police often charge them with some trumped-up violation and force them to pay a fine that wipes out the entire earnings from their day's work. The privatization of state-owned enterprises has been a major component of China's capitalist reform. In the early 1990s, hundreds of thousands of factories in older industrial cities all over China started going through rounds of restructuring. Many laid-off workers fought to save the factories where they had worked for decades from being closed or sold. Workers protected the machinery and equipment from being moved away and destroyed, but they could not sustain their struggle against the powerful political forces of privatization. By the late 1990s and early 2000s, the big wave of privatization was over, but there were still continuing efforts to take over what still remained. Below is one example how in 2005, workers successfully resisted the takeover of one large steel complex in Jilin province. Tonghua Steel was a state-owned enterprise under the jurisdiction of the Jilin Provincial State Asset Supervision and Administration Commission. It was a large steel enterprise and had once employed 30,000 workers. In 2005, Jian Long, China's largest private investment company, bought 40% of Tonghua Steel shares. After the sale of stocks, Tonghua became a joint stock corporation and Jian Long's management took over key management positions. Tonghua began losing money once Jian Long acquired the shares. Then, in 2008, the financial crisis hit the steel industry hard, and Tonghua lost even more money that year. Worker wages were cut to an average of 300 RMB per month, much below the 600 to 800 subsistence wage level. In March 2009, Jian Long made the decision to sell its shareholdings. When the news was announced, 
Tonghua's workers celebrated with firecrackers. Then the workers worked hard, determined to save the enterprise. By early 2009, when the price of steel recovered somewhat, the enterprise showed a small profit, causing Jian Long to decide to take over enterprise again. Jilin's provincial government reached a secret agreement with Jian Long to acquire a controlling share of Tonghua. Contrary to normal procedures, which were to announce the acquisition in a meeting of the staff in the Workers' Representative Congress ahead of the deal, the news was announced after the deal had been made. Upon the announcement, a number of Tonghua's general managers resigned on the spot. How the deal was made and announced infuriated the workers. Early on the morning after the announcement, 3,000 workers and their families staged a demonstration in front of the main office carrying signs reading, quote, Jian Long, get out of Tonghua, and calling for a mass demonstration. A large number of demonstrators gathered and proceeded to the metallurgy section of the factory compound and succeeded in blocking the railway lines leading to the blast furnaces. By the early afternoon, they had blocked all of the railways and shut down all seven blast furnaces. The whole production of Tonghua came to a halt. When Chen, the newly appointed general manager of Tonghua Steel from Jianlong Group, arrived with a team to talk to middle management and staff representatives about ways to resume operations, a group of demonstrators rushed in and dragged Chen out of the room and later beat him to death. By early evening, nearly 10,000 workers gathered. They did not allow any government officials to enter the building. At around 9 in the evening, Tonghua Steel announced on television that the Jilin provincial government asked Jian Long to withdraw and to never participate in restructuring Tonghua Steel again. This is a rare case in which workers successfully blocked the privatization of their factory. Then, only one month later in August 2009, Workers in Linzhou Steel in Henan province were also able to block Fangbao Iron and Steel Company from acquiring their steel enterprise. During the early stage of reform, workers' struggles against capital were mostly in factories built during the socialist period. The struggles were against the privatization of those enterprises and against labor reform turning labor power into a commodity by establishing a labor market where workers were hired and fired. In later stages, the struggles moved to post-socialist-built factories. 2. The growth of industrial workers and their struggles. After the reformers broke up the communes in the countryside, peasants and their families could no longer live on selling what they could grow on their small plots of land. Moreover, agricultural infrastructure, such as the irrigation and drainage systems built during socialist times, fell apart due to lack of maintenance. Other services that existed under the commune, such as healthcare and education, which had supported peasants' daily lives and their overall welfare, all disappeared for lack of funding. In the early 2000s, I visited a village in Henan province. Peasants in this village had used their increased income from selling grain at higher prices in the mid-1980s and built some nice houses. They had exhausted their savings and were left without reserves to help them through the lean years when their incomes dropped due to higher-priced farm inputs. The primary schoolhouse, just a little hut, in the village was about to collapse because its walls were full of cracks. The teacher of the school had not been paid for over a year 
even though she continued to teach. These kinds of conditions force many younger family members to leave home to find jobs so they can send some of their wages home. Older parents and small children stay behind to guard their small piece of land. During the early 1990s, the number of young people leaving home to work in the export industries in coastal cities totaled about 100 million. Now their numbers have increased to around 300 million. Today, there are still around 300 million peasants remaining in the countryside who barely survive on the money their children send home. They often have to abandon farming or just go grow some vegetables for their own consumption. As a result, China's scarce arable land has become even scarcer. Their lives are very hard and some do not survive. There have been reports, not frequent but not rare either, where grandparents have poisoned their grandchildren with pesticides and then committed suicide. I still remember vividly what an old peasant said to me, quote, I followed Chairman Mao in his fight against capitalism, but I did not really know what capitalism was. Now I know. This is the capitalism Chairman Mao warned us about, unquote. While the former state enterprises laid off their workers during the restructuring, a total 300 million people, about the size of the workforce in the entire European Union, migrated from the countryside to cities to work. When the new regime wanted to use exports of low-priced labor-intensified products to spur economic growth, it welcomed subcontracting firms owned by overseas Chinese in Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Singapore to invest in cities in Guangdong, Fujian, and other coastal cities and in the city of Shenzhen. Large numbers of male and female migrants work in these factories producing exports. Mostly men work in construction projects and in transportation infrastructure, while women work in restaurants, hotels, and or as domestic workers for the wealthy, and many become prostitutes. The subcontracting businesses produce clothing, household items, footwear, sports equipment, toys, and electronics. They also make computer components and or assemble phones and tablets, many of which are sold abroad under multinational brand names. Workers in these factories, especially during the early years, were given very little training and as a result suffered many workplace injuries on a daily basis. In the early decades of the 1990s, Hospitals in these cities reported that so many fingers were being severed by accidents at the workplace that they were, quote, collecting human fingers by the bushel, unquote, every day. Workers in electronic factories are often exposed to highly toxic materials, such as solvents that contain benzene and trichloroethylene. Many of these workers became seriously ill with liver and lung damage, the state's interest is not in enacting or enforcing any vigorous regulations to prevent toxic work environments. The brutal factory life of these migrant workers is well documented. They often work 12 to 14 hours a day plus overtime. During busy times when deliveries are due, overtime is imposed on the workers. Even though the overtime stipulated in their contracts is often limited to 36 hours a month, the reality is that it could be several times over that limit, to as many as 200 or more hours a month. Their wages average about $30 a month, or 1,800 RMB, but have been rising in recent years, doubling or even tripling, 
mostly due to workers fighting back and negative international publicity. The result is that subcontracting firms are moving to other low-wage countries, such as Vietnam, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka, as well as to central China. Most of these subcontracting firms are small, but there are also larger factories employing tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of more workers. For example, the aforementioned Foxconn is a subcontracting firm owned by the Honghai Corporation based in Taiwan, which produces computers and other IT products for Apple, Intel, Dell, and other IT multinationals, and employs 1.3 million workers in its various factories. Not all of them are located in Shenzhen or Guangdang, because some of Foxconn's production has moved to central China to avoid paying higher wages. On the surface, these mega factories look like better places to work. However, management in these factories enforces strict work rules to maximize worker productivity. The pace of work is at a breakneck speed and has resulted in well-publicized tragedies. In 2010, 18 workers who could no longer endure the oppressive work regimen committed suicide by jumping from high-rise dormitory buildings. 14 of them died. Most of the labor struggles of these young migrant workers took the form of small strikes concerning wages and working conditions and were settled quickly. However, there were also strikes that lasted longer and had a significant impact on production. One example is the non-high Honda strike in 2010 that lasted from May 17th through June 4th. According to a China Labor Watch report, since Nanhai Honda was a transmission plant, its strikes stopped the production of four auto assembly plants and also sparked strikes in other foreign-owned car factories. On May 31, 2010, 200 thugs affiliated with the local trade union physically assaulted a group of workers. The incident made the Nanhai strike known nationally, well-publicized in national and local newspapers, and garnered support from Chinese academics. Honda Corporation management finally gave in and agreed to the workers' demand, granting an immediate 33% wage increase. The victory at Nanhai Honda encouraged workers in other auto factories. China Labor Watch reported that it spread to at least 11 other auto factories. China Labor Watch also reported that the strikes at auto companies that followed the Honda strike all took place in period of social unrest in China beginning in the early 1990s. The report said that the Ministry of Public Security recorded 8,700 incidents of social unrest nationwide in 1993. That number increased to 74,000 in 2004 and then 87,000 in 2005. By 2006, the ministry stopped publishing numbers for fear of negative impact. Obviously, the non-high Honda strike was organized, but workers in China do not actually have a representative labor union. The All-China Federation of Trade Unions, or ACFTU, is a semi-official government union, often discouraging workers from taking strike actions and is not usually on the workers' side in labor disputes or during labor negotiations. The strike at Nanhai Honda and many other workplaces in China seems to indicate that labor struggles do not require the same kinds of labor unions as in Western capitalist countries. Continued struggles at the factories have raised the workers' wages and benefits. 
higher wages have resulted in relocating manufacturing to cheaper countries. These relocations cause many factory closings, with owners fleeing and leaving behind unpaid wages and debts. Commentators on labor struggles in China recognize the difference between migrant workers' struggles in the newer export manufacturing industries in the coastal cities and earlier struggles of older workers in factories built during the socialist period. Labor struggles in the export industries have been more focused on economic issues, such as wages, benefits, and working conditions. Workers' struggles in factories built before the reform were also about economic issues, but showed more political consciousness and ideology. Since such workers built the factories themselves, they believed the factories belonged to them. The anti-privatization workers' struggles in former state-owned factories, though rarely successful, are of political significance. These struggles show the political consciousness of workers and the legacy of socialism. However, during the last few years, workers' struggles in factories built in the post-reform era have begun to turn more political and ideological. This is a critical turning point in workers' struggle in China. The turning point occurred in part because young intellectuals began to develop a deeper relationship with the working class. During the post-reform era, universities continued offering classes on the theory of Marx, Lenin, and Mao. However, most of these classes taught by party officials often deliberately misinterpreted the true meaning of these revolutionary theories and histories. Students, most of whom were the precious offspring of the new bourgeois class, showed little interest or, because of the relentless black propaganda, were even suspicious toward communist theory. But there were still a small handful of true Marxists tutoring students in study groups outside their regular class. These study groups at Qinghua University and Beijing University started in the 1990s and continued year after year, impacting different graduating classes. The study groups did more than read books, because they understood Mao's teaching on the importance of practice. As part of their study, they went to visit older workers and learn from them about their lives during socialism and the hardship and struggle these workers were going through in the post-reform era. During their summer and winter vacations, they went to work in factories and coastal areas on a short-term basis. Working in factories, even for a short time, they learned about the lives and struggles of this new generation of migrant workers. Through the workers' experiences, the students learned the fundamental differences between socialism and capitalism. During the past two decades, a number of young men and young women perhaps a few hundred, who joined similar study groups in different universities, matured from what they learned in their studies and from the oppression and struggles they witnessed in the society at large, and made a qualitative leap. They decided to devote themselves to serve the working masses. They supported workers by helping them resolve problems and difficulties they encountered in their lives, and they provided services and organized cultural and recreational activities and study groups. I read how students from a Chinese medical school gave massages to long-distance truck drivers. These actions connected the young intellectuals to the workers. They united in struggle. This unity was something the state feared most because the Chinese Communist Party succeeded in the revolution 
by establishing a strong link between the workers and peasants and revolutionary young intellectuals. In late 2018 and early 2019, some of these young men and women supported workers at the Jassic Wielding Equipment Factory in their efforts to form a union. Throughout these struggles, the young intellectuals vowed to serve the working masses, stating, quote, We will always be the sons and daughters of the workers and peasants, unquote. Throughout their struggle, over 100 workers, students, and others were arrested or disappeared by the government. Their arrests and disappearances are closely related to the increasingly oppressive policies and tightening grip on security by the CCP and its chairman Xi Jinping. Moreover, the capitalist regime tightened students' activities on university campuses, prohibiting activities such as study groups, open discussions, and publications. These new oppressive policies have had a chilling effect on students and other intellectuals on the left. However, as long as exploitation and oppression exist, many intellectuals will continue their struggle with the exploited and oppressed masses. This has been the moral fabric of intellectuals in China's long revolutionary history, a tradition from the student May 4th movement in the early 20th century, throughout the long struggle to liberation to the current post-reform period. Impact of China's capitalist reform and opening up on China's land, resources, and environment. As explained earlier, China has had very little arable land. Collective agriculture during socialist times enabled peasants to spend numerous hours improving the quality of the land. During socialist times, China was able to feed its large and growing population by doubling the yield of the available land. During those years, peasants worked long hours to prepare the soil before planting. They used treated waste from humans, animals, and vegetation to carefully prepare organic compost. Even when chemical fertilizer became available in the 1970s, peasants only applied it sparingly. However, after the communes collapsed, the quality of the soil in the countryside steadily deteriorated. As stated above, many young people left the countryside to find jobs to send money home to support their families. Those who remained have grown old, and many of them no longer work in the fields. They hire teams who own farm machinery to do the tilling, planting, and harvesting. These peasants often apply too much chemical fertilizer hoping to have a bigger yield in the short term. The excessive use of chemical fertilizer has not only destroyed the natural nutrients of the land and turned it into hard pieces of cake soil, large quantities of chemical fertilizer also flows from the fields into the rivers. Overuse of chemical fertilizer in agriculture is a serious problem worldwide, but in China, the problem has reached extreme proportions. The agricultural research extensions that used to provide the peasants technical assistance on farming under the commune system no longer exist. China has very limited access to fresh water and is one of the 13 countries with the lowest per capita water supply. After four decades of rapid economic growth after the capitalist, quote, reform and opening up, unquote, Water in 85% of China's six biggest river systems is now undrinkable, even after treatment. The percentage of groundwater that is polluted reached 60% in 2013. 
Since large quantities of water have been used for industrial purposes, currently 400 out of China's 600 major cities do not have adequate water for their residents. Cities continue to dig deeper for water, causing depletion of groundwater. China's Ministry of Water Resources stated that this practice not only further aggravates the water shortage, but also lowers water quality and increases the risk of earthquakes and landslides. Air pollution in China is just as serious. In northern cities, air pollution has reached extremely toxic levels. Readings of particulate matter, no more than 2.5 microns in size, PM2.5, the most harmful type of toxic smog for people to breathe, routinely reaches 40 times the maximum level allowed by the World Health Organization. Although this kind of short-term predatory high-growth strategy brought high profits for China's capitalists, it has deprived China of the potential for long-term sustainable development. China's capitalist reform and opening up and the deep internal contradictions. The capitalist, quote, reform and opening up, unquote, in the past 40 years has resulted in a polarized society that is full of a wide range of serious contradictions. The reform created major class contradictions between the broad masses of toiling people, especially workers and peasants, and the small number, 2% to 3% of the population, of powerful political elites who also own and control tremendous economic power and resources, the new bourgeoisie. Between these two contending forces are the petite bourgeoisie, who comprise less than 30% of the population, but total 300 million people, nearly matching the total population of the United States, or two-thirds of the total population of the European Union. The petite bourgeoisie, who are the small to middle-sized business owners, technocrats, housing developers, realtors, middle-level management and government officials, middle-level military personnel, academic personnel in universities, and others, have benefited from the reform. The petite bourgeoisie in large and medium-sized cities live comfortably. They usually own comfortable apartments, stocks, and other properties. They have extra money to spend on cars and other luxury items and on travel. In 2018, the number of Chinese tourists who traveled abroad totaled 1.4 billion. Many of them spent lavishly on buying name-brand consumer goods. The petite bourgeoisie provide a buffer between the very small number of extremely wealthy bureaucrats and capitalists and the broad masses of working people. Many migrants who work in the service and construction industries are also poorly treated. In the construction business, as a rule, workers receive their full pay only after the project is completed. During the months while construction is in progress, workers usually receive some subsistence wages on a weekly or monthly basis. However, many construction contractors refuse to pay workers what they are owed upon completion of the project. There have been reported cases that instead of paying the workers as they demand, police are called in to use brutal force to disperse them. This kind of extreme abuse and violence committed by private employers, often with the cooperation of the police and local government officials, is commonplace. Peasants suffer similar abuses in the countryside. Two journalists, Chen Guidi and Chun Tao, 
investigated and reported on many shocking cases in Anhui province. In their Chinese peasant investigation report, Chen and Chun documented how village officials beat peasants to death. Published in 2003, their book was quickly disappeared from circulation. In more recent years, there have been many large-scale enclosure movements through the, quote, urbanization of the countryside project, unquote, where incidents of land grabbing and evictions have become commonplace. Any resistance on the part of peasants and urban dwellers is brutally suppressed. Since, quote, regulations, unquote, prohibit confiscation of farmland, developers, with the aid of local authorities, deliberately destroy crops in the fields. One incident I heard about, though not substantiated, was of a developer who poured cement over the almost harvestable wheat, depriving peasants the last bit of income they would have otherwise received. Enclosure movements are widespread. Many urban dwellers have been evicted, even if their houses were only built a few years before, in designated residential areas according to the city's plan. City authorities simply drop different plans for developers and bulldoze people's houses without adequate compensation. Most of these abuses are not reported. There are few places people can go to seek justice because the court system is just as corrupt. Many, if not most, officials of town and city governments and of different administrative units in the countryside have close connections to underground criminals, including mafia-type organizations. Criminal activities such as kidnapping, the operation of prostitution rings and gambling houses, trafficking in illegal drugs, and other illegal activities require and receive the cooperation and protection of the police. Ordinary people know all too well that the police can no longer be trusted to uphold and enforce the law against these criminals. The connection between criminal elements in society and legal authorities go both ways because the police and private businesses often hire gangsters to do their dirty work. Over the past decades, as the burden of environmental pollution on people and their communities have become more serious, people have increasingly organized to block the construction of power plants, chemical factories, and garbage incinerators. Demonstrations against environmental pollution often involve tens of thousands and even hundreds of thousands of people. One such demonstration happened in September 2014 in Pingjing County, Hunan province, against the construction of a coal-powered electric plant. The town closed down its high school so students could participate. More than 10,000 people showed up to the demonstration. The demonstrators held up large signs with messages to Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping, do not sacrifice the environment for economic development. And Xi Jinping, we want green mountains and clear water. We do not want mountains of gold or silver. Another large demonstration in Zigong City, Sichuan Province, at the end of January 2019, also involved more than 10,000 people protesting underground fracking for natural gas. The city experienced three earthquakes where two people died. The residents suspected the fracking had caused earthquakes, and demonstrators surrounded the city administration building to demand that fracking be suspended. The demonstrators finally dispersed after those responsible promised to abide by the suspension. The large number of protests happening in China 
reflect many previously unresolved contradictions and the development of new contradictions. As living and working conditions continue to deteriorate, and as corrupt and abusive government officials continue to be uninterested in finding any real solutions, China's masses are increasingly frustrated and angry. All of the issues, including land grabbing, factory closings, and environmental pollution, are problems the masses face every day. These issues manifest in strikes at the workplace and demonstrations on the streets and in the countryside. These ongoing incidents show that the contradictions in Chinese society have reached a heightened level. Xi Jinping has repeatedly called for building a harmonious society, but most people regard these calls as meaningless rhetoric. As the contradictions between the reformers and the masses intensify, the government uses more repressive measures to suppress the voice and actions of the masses. Chinese society has gone through tremendous changes during the capitalist, quote, reform and opening up, unquote, in the past four decades. The left outside of China have been actively discussing and debating the meaning and significance of the Chinese revolution, its socialist construction, and the capitalist reform, and how this history has impacted the world. The left in China, quite apart from those outside, has also engaged in serious discussions and debates on these same issues. A short discussion follows on how the left in China evaluates the legacy of the socialist past, how they analyze China's current situation, and their outlook for China's future. The overwhelming majority of the Chinese people are very proud of China's liberation in 1949 and the years of socialist construction. They hold dear the legacy of Mao Zedong and socialism. For this reason, the capitalists who knowingly betrayed Mao and what he stood for have had to continue to use him as a symbol to be worshipped. But most of the Chinese people have genuine affection toward Mao. Many of them celebrate Mao's birthday year after year, and the people designated Mao's birthday on December 26 as People's Day. Tens of thousands of people from all other China gather in Shaoshan Hunan, Mao's birthplace, to celebrate every year. In 2018, tens of thousands of people arrived in Shaoshan on December 25th and stayed up all night in the large outdoor square to celebrate Mao's 125th birthday. They brought flowers, large banners, and many red flags, and they shouted slogans and sang revolutionary songs throughout the night. During the early years of reform, several respected old Communist Party loyalists, who no longer played active roles within the party, kept writing letters to the political bureau voicing their opinions on the reform policies and presented what they thought were constructive criticisms. Their letters and opinions were ignored by those in power. These party loyalists gave hope to some on the left that there were still healthy elements within the party. Thus, some within the left believed that the party was not totally hopeless, and they formed a faction that called for reform from within. Even before the Nationalist Revolution in 1911 to overthrow the Qing Dynasty, nationalism and patriotism has historically played an important role in China's political changes. Because China has been invaded and occupied, its people exploited and oppressed by imperialist powers for more than a century. Even before the Nationalist Revolution in 1911, Mao was a patriot in his youth. There has always been agreement in China that it needs to be strong in order to fend off aggression from outside. The question was only how to make China strong. 
When Japan invaded China, Mao called on the country to cooperate with the Kuomintang to defeat the Japanese, because the survival of China as a nation was at stake. After the Japanese surrendered, the Chinese Communist Party continued to lead the fight against the Kuomintang until liberation in 1949. Many progressive youth joined the fight against the Kuomintang for patriotic reasons, because they believed that the Chinese Communist Party was the only hope for China's survival. Those who actually believed in communism were not the majority. The two-line struggle within the Communist Party during the socialist construction reflected the divide between the revolutionaries and those who were fundamentally nationalists. The capitalist rotors represented by Liu Shaoqi and Deng Xiaoping believed capitalism could build a strong China. Deng's famous saying was, quote, It doesn't matter whether a cat is white or black as long as it catches mice, unquote. Meaning, quote, It does not matter whether the system is capitalism or socialism. The one that makes China strong is the best system, unquote. The results of 40 years of capitalism in China are obvious. What most people see depends on whether they have benefited from or have been hurt by four decades of capitalism. In other words, their economic interest is an important determinant. However, whether they support the capitalist reform or not is not entirely based on their personal gains or losses. Nationalism and patriotism play a role, especially among China's intellectuals. Many people who are part of the forces against the current regime are very concerned about the effects of 40 years of capitalism on China as a country and on Chinese people as a whole. They have seen how capitalism changed Chinese society in many negative and detrimental ways. The abuse and corruption committed by a powerful few, the deterioration of China's land and natural resources, the destruction of socialist values, the hideous crimes against vulnerable people, and the rampant spread of the underworld of drugs and prostitution. In other words, they have real concern about the future of China and the Chinese people. They actively join the struggle against unfair treatment of workers, environmental pollution, genetically engineered foods, and many others. The current opposition forces are not a homogenous group. Within the opposition, there are those with nationalist tendencies who believe the principal contradiction in China today is between China and other imperialist countries, especially the United States. They believe any political turmoil within China invites imperialist countries to intervene. They may dislike many aspects of the current regime, such as the treatment of workers, the environmental problems, the rampant corruption, and the fact that China has become extremely polarized as a country. But they believe the current regime is the only political force that can protect China's sovereignty. They see how aggressive China has been toward other less developed countries in Africa, Latin America, and other Asian countries, yet they do not condemn China for being another imperialist country. Instead, they are the apologists for China's actions and argue that China treats these countries in a, quote, kinder, unquote, way compared to other imperialists. They tend to turn a blind eye to the fact that China is pillaging the resources of these countries and oppressing their people. Those with nationalist tendencies strongly defend the interests of Chinese capital. They are very keen on how the CCP handles its economic relations with other imperialist countries. 
They do not want the CCP to give in too much when dealing with other imperialist powers, especially the United States. They watch carefully how Xi Jinping negotiates with the U.S. in current trade talks. In turn, the CCP has to be mindful of their influence on public opinion. A recent online article on redchina.cn.net is a good representation of the views of this group. The article entitled, Promoting the Anti-America Patriotic National Front is the Most Important Mission of the Maoists in China Today. In the article, the authors stated that the left should not focus their struggle on supporting JSIC workers. Instead, the focus should be fighting the United States, which opposes China's 2025 Made in China ambition. The article continued to say that this patriotic front should unite not only those who believe that socialism can save China, but also those, including overseas Chinese, who truly have the interests of China in their hearts, even if these patriotic people may still have illusions about capitalism. The author uses the historical example of China's national front against the Japanese and calls for another protracted war against the American imperialists. The article was quickly refuted by another article entitled, Contradiction Between Classes is the Principal and Most Important Contradiction in China, authored by Zen Yan. The author asserted that any change happens mainly through internal factors. He wrote that during socialist years, China was strong and no imperialist country dared to interfere with China's internal affairs because the socialist government had the full support of its people. Zen Yan refuted the previous article's attempt to equate China's current situation with the time of Japanese invasion and occupation by saying that there is not one foreign soldier in China today, and the danger Chinese people face is not external, but internal. The article says true Maoists today should firmly oppose imperialism and revisionism, which is represented by the elite bureaucratic capitalist class. He also said that for quite a while now, False Maoists have tried to protect those in power, the current Communist Party, and make imperialism the principal enemy, ignoring the fact that we cannot fight imperialism without simultaneously fighting revisionism. Zen Yan's analysis is correct because the interests of China's bureaucratic capitalist class are closely linked to global monopoly capital represented by imperialist powers. Since those with nationalist tendencies believe only the current regime can maintain the stability and unity of China, they continue to think that there are healthy elements within the party and therefore continue to advocate for reform within the party. They once placed their hopes in Bo Zhilai, a prominent government official who advocated for reform. As the mayor of Chongqing, a major city and province in southwest China, Bo put forth Chongqing as a model that advocated for more equal distribution of income, more public services, such as public housing, cleaning up government corruption, and cutting down police brutality. However, the party power center could not tolerate even such moderate reforms proposed by Bo and got rid of him on some trumped-up charges. Yet it is still difficult for those who advocate reform from within to give up their hopes. Since Xi Jinping, more often than previous capitalist rulers, likes to quote Mao, those who place their delusional hopes in Xi listen to his speeches to count how many times Xi mentions Mao. In the meantime, Xi has tightened his control by using punitive measures to prevent the contradictions below the surface from boiling over.
China and Chinese People and the Future of World Socialist Revolution. Though forces that resist the oppression have grown in strength, they are still not strong enough to counter the reactionary forces. In the next few decades, China will become a critical center for the struggle between global monopoly capital and massive forces of the proletariat. As noted in the section explaining China's, quote, reform and opening up, unquote, changes in China in the past 40 years, especially since 2000, have greatly benefited imperialism at the expense of the working people. In 2011, China surpassed the United States to become the largest manufacturing country in the world with an industrial workforce of 112 million people, far exceeding those of other industrial countries. Not only does China have the largest number of industrial workers, it also has the largest number of labor struggles involving wage disputes, work stoppages, and other work-related issues. In addition to workers' struggles, there have also been many other economic and social contradictions in China, including environmental problems, corruption problems, police brutality, and other forms of oppression. I have no doubt that many of these contradictions will continue to surface and sharpen in the coming decades. In a world where capital has become globalized, workers' struggles and people's struggles also need to be more connected. In the decades ahead, with all of the struggles that are yet to come, China will be the center of these struggles. Conclusion What can we learn from the history of China from the past century, since the 19 revolution that overthrew the Qing dynasty? We have learned that people in oppressed nations can rise up and liberate themselves. During the past 100 years, Chinese people's hopes and aspirations have been for China to be a sovereign nation and to be treated equally among other nations. The 1911 revolution was a democratic revolution of the old type, led by the capitalist class with the goal of destroying feudalism. That revolution failed when Chiang Kai-shek betrayed the revolution, as Mao explained in New Democratic Revolution, the democratic revolution of the old type could not succeed because the capitalist class in semi-colonial and semi-feudal countries was too weak, and they had to rely on the landlord class to rule the country. For that reason, it is not possible to have a democratic revolution led by the capitalist class in a semi-colonial and semi-feudal country to end feudalism. Mao wrote that only a democratic revolution of the new type led by the proletariat, could end feudalism. If democratic revolution is to be led by the proletariat, then socialist revolution will surely follow. The Chinese Communist Party, founded in 1921 and led by the proletariat, built a strong alliance with China's peasantry and formed a broad coalition with the national bourgeoisie. They succeeded in the liberation of China on October 1, 1949, when Mao declared that the Chinese people had stood up and a new China was born. Revolutionaries around the world celebrated with the Chinese people the possibility of building a new society where people would be free of domination and oppression, both from within and from without. The socialist construction that followed inspired many revolutionaries, especially those in poor and oppressed nations. In 1956, the Chinese Communist Party galvanized revolutionaries all over the world when it dared to challenge the revisionists of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Then in 1966, 
China took another critical step in leading the anti-revisionist fight by launching the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution to struggle against the revisionists within the Chinese Communist Party. The intensive anti-revisionist struggle during the 10 years of the Cultural Revolution exposed the revisionists within the CCP and the capitalist projects they had tried to implement. Although the struggle between the revolutionary line and the revisionist line was at times confusing, chaotic, and even violent, it demonstrated clearly that if socialist revolution were to proceed, the struggle against revisionism would be unavoidable and continuing revolution necessary. The Cultural Revolution also showed the content, form, and strategy of such an anti-revisionist struggle in a country going through socialist transition. During that period in China, the people followed Mao and proceeded to develop socialism, which liberated them from economic deprivation, class oppression, foreign aggression, and political persecution. Socialist construction gave rise to great enthusiasm among Chinese people to put forth their best efforts to build a China with hope, pride, and aspirations. Within a short period of two decades, Chinese workers, peasants, and intellectuals built a solid foundation for industry and agriculture for their long-term sustainable development. At the same time, China produced enough economic wealth to improve the livelihood and well-being of a large and growing population, providing them with basic economic security, education, health, and culture. Mao's revolutionary line was defeated after his death in 1976, when the revisionists in the CCP seized political power and began their capitalist reform. After four decades of capitalist development, high rates of economic growth impressed some people enough to believe that China was on its way to becoming an economic superpower. Those who have such an outlook must believe that imperialism, as it has existed in the last hundred years, still has a long way to go. It is helpful to recall that by the last 30 years of the 20th century, global monopoly capital has run out of places to expand, requiring as its solution opening up more space for monopoly capital. China's capitalist reform came at just the right time to provide a wide open space, free of litter with abundant, cheap, and disciplined labor for global monopoly capital. Monopoly capital, together with Chinese capital, indeed expanded, not only in China, but also in India, Brazil, the rest of Latin America and Asia, and the whole African continent. Forty years later, global monopoly again is running out of places to expand. In the meantime, rich and poor countries have been floated with, quote, made in China, unquote, products. China's land, river, and natural resources are exhausted, and its environment thoroughly polluted from overproduction and overinvestment. Some experts say that even if it were possible, it would take much longer than 40 years for the environment to recover to where it was 40 years ago. The so-called, quote, China's miracle, unquote, or, quote, the miracle of monopoly capital, unquote, of the past four decades cannot be repeated. The future of the Chinese people, and in fact the future of all people in the world and the natural world itself, depends how long we will allow monopoly capital to dominate the future of the earth and of humanity. That is to say, our future depends on how revolutionaries can unite the international working class to resolutely destroy international monopoly capital, to end capitalism 
and to build socialism.